0: Welcome, everyone, to Square One, a podcast series run by the Harvard Association for Law and Business. My name is Ramin Sheth, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. Today, we're excited to be joined by Jerry Storch, currently CEO of Storch Advisors and former CEO of Toys R Us, Hudson's Bay Company, and vice chairman of Target. Jerry, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Great. So Jerry, I'm excited to talk to you today and dive into a bunch of topics you know, related to careers, leadership, and, and what's going on in the world of retail, specifically as it relates to technology. But to kick us off, let's start a little bit further back in your personal journey. You know, As a background for our listeners, you had an illustrious academic career at Harvard College, Harvard Law, and Harvard Business School. And as you left grad school, you made a pivotal decision between you know, which job to take. So talk a little bit more about, you know, how you ended up at McKinsey & Company and the framework you really used to think through that decision.
1: Well, I think like many people, I believe that uh, being a lawyer was a time-honored profession It's one of the things that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, accomplished people did in life is you became a lawyer. You could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, and there were some uh, some careers that your mom and dad would be really proud of for you to go to. So, so I went to uh, law school uh, and uh, business school with the intent of being a better business lawyer and not with the intent of going into business. Uh, and I worked hard uh, to be a lawyer. I clerked uh, during each of the summers during the J.D. MBA program, which are three summers, I clerked at various law firms trying to find the one that was the best uh, best match. Uh, but as I did that, I found that, I, that uh, like many uh, law school uh, graduates uh, that I meet, that I found that uh, the actual practice of law was a little different from the, uh, you know, from the romanticized version that we might have going into it, and that it was actually somewhat uh, somewhat boring and tedious work. And uh, that's not uh, slamming the entire profession, because uh, I'm sure it can be absolutely fantastic for some people. But, but I didn't think that's what I wanted to do all my life. And so, uh, so at that very last second, in a way, I made the decision to go to work uh, in business at McKinsey, almost viewing that as a way of, of uh, kicking the ball down the field of, uh, of uh, leaving actions opens and kind of going to post-graduate school uh, in, uh, in management uh, consulting. And uh, and I remember I had, uh, like a lot of Harvard Law School people, I had lots of offers from law firms, particularly Manhattan law firms. I, think I had 30 letters from various law firms, uh, almost uh, 28 of which were in you know, within a mile of each other somewhere in Manhattan. And I had the one letter from McKinsey. And uh, I decided to do something different. And I uh, started off in business, and I never heard of it.
0: So now you're at McKinsey. You stay for, you know, about 10 years or so uh, before heading to Target. How did the Target opportunity come up, and, and what enticed you to leave McKinsey?
1: Well, like many decisions in life, uh, that I've made, I made it based for personal reasons, not so much for, uh, not, not with some grand scheme to advance a long term uh, career objective. And so, uh, hours at McKinsey were very long. Uh, There's a lot of travel involved. Uh, my wife was uh, was disappointed in, uh, in the intensity of the work of the time away from home. And so, uh, uh, someone who was a McKinsey alum actually was working at what was then Dayton Hudson, which was the predecessor to Target Corporation. And he offered me a job to come and work at, uh, at, at uh, Target, at Dayton Hudson. And I actually felt I was sort of quasi-retiring into this job. I remember I took a pay cut to do it, you know, did all the things you're not supposed to do uh, to, uh, to uh, advance your career. And, uh, and I, I went ahead and did it in an attempt to, uh, to provide uh, more time to my, to my growing family. To uh, to have a more balanced life, so that's why I left, and, uh, and I, I love McKinsey, a fantastic institution, but it certainly uh, certainly takes a toll on one's personal life. So uh, so that's why I did. It's not the way it turned out, but uh, but it's what it seemed at the time.
0: I think one of the most, you know, interesting things about, you know, your career in in the different roles you've held is actually how at the forefront of technology you were. You know, at Target you founded and led the e-commerce strategy of target.com, at Toys R Us you expanded the e-commerce business to over a billion dollars and led international expansion into China, and at Hudson's Bay you drove, you know, the acceleration of an all-channel e-commerce business model. It's easy to look at these accomplishments in 2017 and say You know, that though I'm sure the execution is challenging, the conceptual logic of having a robust presence online is obvious. But in the mid-90s and early 2000s, you know, this conceptual logic wasn't as obvious or clear of a decision. So how did you, in thinking back, how did you lead the team at Target, you know, to push through the importance of going online? And second, as a macro lesson, what are the takeaways on how to think through, you know, making some of these types of big bets at scale?
1: Well, I, I don't think you start by uh, by having some uh, unprecedented vision of the future. For me, it's because I'm I'm interested in technology, and I've always felt, as a matter of, of uh, first principle, that uh, being ahead of technology is important. I remember when the uh, this may may date me a little bit, but I remember when the IBM PC came out and the uh, and the first uh, first uh, Mac, you know, the first Apple uh, uh, personal computer. Uh, you know, about the same time, within a year of each other, and I I, I was I just started at McKinsey, and I was I, I thought these were fascinating, so I was the first person in the office to use uh, PC for uh, for my projects, and really it was a simple spreadsheet application, and then there was a, a statistical regression uh, package uh, for the uh, you know for the for the personal computer that I used, and somehow I, I people thought, oh, this guy is really smart, he knows computers, and of course I knew nothing at all about computers. Uh, any more than anyone who uses a PC or a Mac Desk today. Uh, I just, just was open to using them and uh, found that it, uh, it was a lot of fun. I was an expert at Lotus One Two Three version 1.0, but that didn't translate into any uh, future programming skills. So, but on the, on the other hand, uh, you know, it enabled me to do my work better and faster, so I was pretty excited about that. And then when the internet came along, I had just started at uh, like, you know, what was then Dayton Hudson, the processor, the target corporation, and uh, one of the board members who worked for a financial printer, for a printer, he said, you know, this Internet could be really interesting or disruptive. This is in the 90s. And, uh, and uh, it could, could change things. And everyone in the room looked like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, what is this thing? And so I took the corporate jet to visit the Internet. It was in Chicago. And uh, we had to fly from Minneapolis. And I uh, went to a room with uh, green screens and guys in white coats. And they were essentially emailing with people in Switzerland at the uh, at the origins of uh, of uh, today's modern uh, modern internet before there were any e-commerce companies or anything like that. And we all sort of puzzled how this could change, what might happen in, in retail. So we weren't really sure. But then Amazon happened, and they were only selling books then. We thought that's interesting. Maybe we should sell books too online. And we thought about that. Decided it was already an Amazon at doing that. But we knew there was something important here. So. So, uh, so we at least have to try. So we put together a team of people. Most of them, frankly, were were kind of outcasts. Uh, were uh, people from various parts of the organization who had similar interests, but not not who were uh, seen as the uh, sort of the, the ultimate thinkers in the corporation or anything like that. And uh, and we started building uh, building uh, a little business. And we did a million dollars of sales our first year. and Lost much more than that. And, uh, and we're trying to figure out, uh, figure out how to turn this into something, something that was, uh, that was real. I was going to, uh, to my boss, the, the, the CEO at, uh, at Target, and uh, telling him that, that we had to buy the rights to Target.com because all we owned was TargetStores.com. And he said, "You're going to pay money for just a different name." And I, and I said, "Yeah, but it's only ten thousand dollars." He Didn't like that very much. He thought that was a lot of money. for something that was just a name. So, but it had been bought by a company in uh, Westwood, Massachusetts that sold targeting software. And it was obviously more sophisticated with, uh, with computers than we were. But uh, but we bought it. And uh, and uh took years and years for them to build a team and to get going and to, uh, and to do it right. And the fundamental insight we had, which has turned out to be correct, that was different from what our competitors had, including Walmart, was that the future... Of the internet was not as a standalone business, but right? rather as an integrated part of every business. So the internet is, is uh, transformational and revolutionary, but not transcendent. It doesn't replace everything that came before any more than electricity replaced everything that came before. It just enables uh, businesses to be far better versions of what they are today. And so you have to be an internet company in your DNA, but not just an internet company. You to be really good at whatever your business does, whether it's, Services or or, uh, or the consumer goods or, or or anything, but the internet's a tool like like electricity or the internal combustion engine for all of us to use. That's how we started Target, and uh, we had a huge leg up over Walmart at the time, which uh, was unusual because Walmart's so much bigger. But uh, because uh, because we started an internet team in Minneapolis tied into the rest of the business from the get go, whereas Walmart made a made a left footed or wrong move. Partner, partnered with a VC firm in California and started a separate corporation they didn't even own all of uh, to start their internet business out in California uh, when their headquarters was in uh, was in Arkansas. And it took many years for them to catch up. And Target.com was way ahead of Walmart.com for years in, in the internet uh, in race. But as with most things ultimately uh, it came down to Walmart was a much bigger business and, uh, and they've certainly caught up and are doing fantastic now.
0: You talked a little bit about Amazon as well as the importance of having, you know, the internet and technology proficiency as your core DNA. I, I want to use that as a lever actually to talk about, um, you know, the Toys R Us story a little bit more and, and specifically with the relation to Amazon. You know, it's a, it's a classic case in the industry on a partnership that I think looked incredibly accretive, you know, for both parties, specifically Toys R Us, but, you know, turned sour a, as the relationship went on. And I, I imagine it was hard to tell you know, in the early 2000s when the partnership was struck and and even possibly early on in the tenure of the partnership. But playing Monday morning quarterback, you know, this partnership ultimately stunted Toys R Us's online presence and and digital strategy, ultimately being, you know, one of a few levers that that caused hardship for the business. And I'm curious on your thoughts on, you know, what the story looked like on the inside. And and again, as, as a macro lesson, what does this type of situation teach, you know, about partnering really on a core function? You know, something that at the time... Might not have looked as as core, but you know as to your point, technology and processing and digital now is completely needs to be completely core to the DNA of any successful business yeah.
1: so so uh,
0: the sequencing
1: is is kind of interesting here because uh, the deal with toys and Amazon was actually done when I was then targeted, and so i didn 't do the deal, but I was there. Planted. so let's go let's let's get the sequence uh, in the proper order so Amazon started, everyone thought they were cool. I mentioned earlier how at Target we were watching them, trying to figure out what what, what that could mean. Then Toys R Us, who actually I believe was quite forward-looking. Again, I was not there, so the management there was quite forward-looking. They did the deal with Amazon. The problem is it was a bad deal for Toys R Us. They didn't know it at the time. I'm sure they thought it was an okay deal, but they did it. They did one of the first big deals with Amazon. I I applaud, applaud the management at that time for having done that. Where they stumbled was the deal... The financial terms were way too much in Amazon's advantage, and was and they weren't forward-looking enough about what might happen as the internet uh, as the internet evolved. So it turned into a very bad financial deal for uh, Toys R Us as the business uh, as the business grew on Amazon's on Amazon's platform. So the lesson there is that you don't do deals like that. But that when you do them, make sure they're flexible enough, have resets in them or some other way of evaluating them as they go forward so you don't end up in the kind of position the toys found themselves in, which was absolutely untenable, where, uh, where in essence toys had a very expensive deal. And they thought they had exclusivity online with, uh, with Amazon. But then Amazon launched the marketplace with tons of toy sellers other than Toys R Us and were selling toys uh, against, in essence, against uh, Toys R Us. It went to court. Amazon lost, by the way. We don't know this maybe. Yep. But Amazon lost, but the outcome was uh, divorce. So a separation of Toys R Us. And Amazon had forced, uh, forced uh, 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 Toys R Us rapidly to find a different, uh, different uh, way of going to market on the Internet because they had been so reliant on, uh, on, on Amazon. I would say what was interesting was in a subsequent period, after the Toys deal, was, was struck and before it fell apart, we did a deal at target with Amazon, a follow-on deal and when we did it, we had the benefit of being second. So it was a huge benefit because the deal that we struck was far different economically. Now I would say we didn't know all the Toys R Us terms but it had been a few years later and the internet had evolved and so the deal we struck turned out to be one that, uh, that, that made a little bit more sense and I found out later than in the trial between Amazon and Toys that the Target deal had been introduced in evidence as proof that the, that the uh, Toys R Us deal was financially untenable, because the Target deal was was a much uh, much better deal financially for both, well, for, tar- for Target at least, uh, and a uh, you know, much more economic uh, much more economic proposition. But even that deal fell apart as uh, the interests of the parties diverged, and as Amazon really wanted to wanted to sell everything and own everything, and uh, start to undercut uh, Target in my opinion. Uh, online as well. And so uh, Target eventually left, uh, left Amazon. That was after I was already in Toys, that they left. So uh, so I, uh, when I walked in the door, the judgment came through that week in favor of Toys, which I didn't know if he won or lost. And I, tried, I called up Jeff and tried to negotiate with him to get the deal uh, reset so we could keep going because I recognized the massive disruption that would occur in the Toys R Us business from the divorce the two parties, but uh, he still loved his old deal and felt that the judge had simply decided it improperly, and so we were at a, at a standstill there. And so we had to uh, go. For, we had to leave the Amazon platform and start from scratch in three months with a new website. I think we did a fantastic deal. The team did a great job. Got a website up, running and got going on selling product on the internet. But there's no doubt it cost time and that uh, uh, momentum on the internet uh, due to that. Uh, due to that. Uh, uh, breakup. But the roots were really that the original deal was not forward-looking enough. It was brilliant to do it with Amazon, I would say. But the deal structure itself wasn't. did not anticipate the changes that would take place in the future. And so you have to try to think out, you know, not just what happens next year in these deals when the conditions are as you know them and as they are today, but what happens when the conditions change as they do so rapidly in both uh, technology and retail today.
0: Yeah, it's an interest. it's an interesting takeaway, especially because, you know, to your point, Toys R Us and Amazon settled, Amazon lost, right, and paid, you know, 50-plus million in damages. But to the broader kind of macro conceptual uh, philosophy of, you know, owning everything in the world or moving forth in retail, that, you know, seems like a drop in the bucket for, for a company like Amazon from the perspective, right, of not having to be exclusive to one provider.
1: No, there's just no doubt in my mind that it would be better if we were able to repair the Exactly. Have. Exactly the time I got there it was or had already been litigating things were quite hostile and it wasn't possible to put the put the uh, the eggshell pieces back together again.
0: So let's talk about Amazon a little bit more. You know obviously Amazon's having a huge impact on retailers and, and the way companies are shaping their current strategies. And you know the conventional logic is Amazon is going to be you know the demise of all retailers with its massive technology impact, online presence and even some of the burgeoning, you know, smart brick-and-mortar presence. You know, having been on the other side, I'm curious as to what you've observed as the strengths that, you know, core traditional retailers have comparatively and what the counter argument is to the conventional thinking that, you know, Amazon's dominance is inevitable. And I I should caveat by saying I'm a huge believer in, in Amazon and probably that conventional logic, but I'm very interested to hear kind of from an industry insider on the other side what are some of the things that you know, the masses kind of miss or, or think through when thinking it's just inevitable that Amazon's going to roll over everyone?
1: Well, Amazon's a great company, and they're going to, going to keep doing well. But keep in mind, they still don't make any money on the, on the merchandising side of the business. They make money on the, on the cloud computing and other ways. They make money selling digital books. Uh, and, uh, but, but in selling physical goods, they really don't make any money. And that's because the model of home delivery is reshaping really them. Charge is not an economic model, and probably never can be for products that are, uh, you know, below a certain price point. And uh, yet, that's that's grown uh, very, very rapidly to where, uh, for some categories, it's fifteen or twenty percent of the business. But the vast majority of the business is still done in physical books and mortar stores, where people actually make money on what they sell, and where uh, where customers for a variety of reasons like to come. They like the physicality. They like being, uh, the instantaneous reinforcement. They like the service of knowing their, their salesperson, they like the ability to try things on. There's, stores have tons of advantages, but that doesn't mean that, uh, that they can stay the way that they've been historically. Stores have to integrate the Internet rapidly into their businesses, or they will not survive. And I believe what's going to happen is that there will be a convergence between the Internet-only companies, which are principally home delivery companies, and the stores, uh, which, as the stores add more Internet, and the Internet companies add more physicality, they're going to be indistinguishable in terms of business model, where each will have lots of Internet, lots of home delivery, lots of in-store pickup, physical stores to try things on and to, and to, and to, uh, to provide that locality of physicality. And what you will have is lar- a few large brands competing for dominance. Amazon will clearly be one of them. Walmart will clearly be another one. For those two, you can check off and know they're going to be around. And the question is, how many more will they be and who will they be? And uh, there will be others. And there will be other companies that go out of business that are quite well-known today. There will be a lot of bankruptcies, a lot of store closings because there's too many physical stores. But that doesn't mean they don't, don't there won't be physical stores anymore. Of course there will be. Uh, even when Amazon bought Whole Foods, it was, in a way, a true endorsement that you need physicality and locality in order to, in order to, to thrive in this, uh, in this environment. And so so uh, this is a hugely uh, tumultuous period in retailing. It's going to be very difficult for anybody to make any money during this period because the, you know Amazon doesn't, and that's what you have to compete against. But out the other side of the pipe will come you know a few large retail businesses just like you've seen a you know, massive consolidation of banking as that industry underwent a revolution. and those businesses will look very much alike in that they will have huge internet arms but they'll also have huge physical, physical arms and the internet and home delivery are not synonymous, so the internet arms. I call it, won't just be for you know, buying online and having something delivered very expensively to your home, but also links to those stores and links to other methods of, uh, of product acquisition and delivery. So, so the model will change very dramatically throughout the future, but, uh, but it doesn't mean that Amazon will be the only player. And uh, you know, clearly, as I said, it's no doubt in my mind Walmart will thrive and do well. So the real question is how many others will there be uh, to compete in this all-channel world of the future? Where the internet as a technology is just like uh, electricity or internal combustion engine I alluded to earlier, that is a technology that is ubiquitous, but it's not a business model in and of itself. The business model that Amazon has pioneered of home delivery is not the dominant model today in retailing, nor will it be in the future, and it's not the only model in which the internet will play a massive role as we look to the uh, as we look to the future. Things are going to happen we can't even envision with the with with uh, uh, you know uh, the uh, uh, you know, virtual reality technology. So you can put glasses on and be physical in the store when you when you uh, and of course soon you won't even need the glasses. I'm sure you'll just look at <laughs>
0: into a smart you know, lens same, or so.
1: Same uh, virtual uh, virtual uh, experience, but uh, you know uh, artificial intelligence with uh, with three D printing. where where then. Uh, you know, the huge disadvantage of home delivery gets eliminated if you're actually manufacturing in your home, but, uh, but uh, you know, still, you wonder how far away are some of these technologies. And what I've said, and, I still, and I've said this for 15 to 20 years, maybe, is that uh, the Internet will not be, its home delivery will not be the dominant mode of distribution of products to consumers until they invent the transporter, like on Star Trek. Because for digital delivery, right, of digital products... The internet already is the dominant and superior channel of distribution. That's how we all get our news and our pre-recording music and uh, you know our books, and a variety of, uh, variety of digitizable product. But for physical goods, until they met the transport, you don't have that tremendous economy of, of logistics on the internet. In fact, you have a huge dis if home delivery is the model you're talking about. So, we, So there's a lot of evolution on the line. So there's no... There's no end to sight. No one can envision what's going to happen in a thousand years, but for, for decades to come, there will be stores, and the dominant models will combine the stores with a fully uh, integrated internet, uh, uh, from uh, from uh, from the, a model that allows home delivery to models which integrate with the stores to those that just let you shop more easily wherever you happen to be.
0: So looking forward, how do, you, how do you start to think more and more? You alluded to it you know, a little bit in, in your response just now. How do you start to think about what the biggest impacts of technology will be on retail, right? You know, These businesses, core traditional retailers, um, possibly because they're competing with Amazon or, you know, again, forward-looking management teams that see the inevitable, are starting to bake technology more and more into their core proficiencies, right? Walmart, Um, you know, just two days ago, Target announced their largest acquisition ever of shipped, right? How do you start to think about what the biggest impacts of AI, machine learning, augmented reality, virtual reality are and and what they are for retail? Is it, you know, does the story go more the lens of you know AI and machine learning's importance on you know operational excellence and operational efficiency on the back end? Kind of you know, like what Amazon has in terms of core proficiency? Or does, you know, and or does the front end experience change completely with augmented reality and virtual reality? It's certainly not mutually exclusive, but what are your thoughts, you know, on the emerging technologies, uh, on these types of emerging technologies and where, you know, you see the most room for impact in retail?
1: Well, with, with uh, you know, this is not not new in the sense that uh, technology is always important, and it always has been uh, critical and important, and, you uh, Retailers have always been very advanced in terms of adoption of technologies, uh, and uh, if you don't, then you, then you don't succeed. Having said that, it's kind of like a, uh, a pyramid where we're closer in at the base of the pyramid. You can see the, uh, the uh, use of technology that drives your business in the near term, and that's where most of the investment has to go. It, it, uh, Retailers retails have a very thin margin. Uh, you can't can't be spending a lot of money on technologies that are ten years down the line or more. So you have to think, what's now? What's today? And there's plenty of technology that's now and today, including, of course, uh, you know, better 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 websites, a better uh, mobile experience, including uh, including uh, uh, RFID uh, technology in order to track inventory in a in a in a uh, in a better uh, fashion, including customization and personalization. Uh, 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 applications using the data that retailers have on customers to make sure that the products that are being offered are the right ones for for each customer, and uh, that, that's true both online and integrated into the store experience. There's plenty of investments that are clear, you know, crystal clear how they can pay back. They can eat up all of your money, and so and that's where most of it should go is to those those technologies that produce returns that are that are immediate. And uh, and that will uh, will uh, still push you at the lead at the pack if you adopt them because most 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 of the technology takes years to take years to implement. And most people haven't been able to to do that fully yet. So that's where you spend most of your money. When you get to the out there technologies like virtual reality or artificial intelligence, etc., um, well, you know, well, there certainly are applications in the back office that are immediate uh, for you know, like that can replace some of your. Uh, competitive financial work, for example. Uh, By and large, most of the consumer applications are still out there, out there far enough that that I don't think most retailers have the the capital or the cash to make that that, uh, a significant investment. And uh, they should, uh, you know, my my view is you don't want to be out there on the so-called bleeding edge on these things. Let let, uh, technology companies develop them further. there will be plenty of vendors who are willing to bring them to you as they as they work on them and you can watch them as they go and uh, when when uh, uh, the key is is not being early and not being late and it's for most of of those technologies still too early
0: i think one of the biggest critiques of technology and ai these days is how much of a role technology will play in the disruption of millions of jobs in the economy right leading to significant displacement and, and by extension inequality and 5 million trucking jobs in the context of self-driving cars is is often cited as the leading example, you know, for this school of thought. There, you know, recently at the Dealbook conference, you know, by the New York Times, Uber CEO had actually a, a pretty interesting response to this logic, right? He noted that, you know, today only 1% of all miles are driven via ride-sharing, and the aspirational growth over the next decade for ride-sharing is to consume 10% of the market. And to get to that 10x you know, it isn't possible for growth solely to be driven by self-driving cars. Self-driving cars may take up, you know, let's say 70% of that growth, but to shore up the remaining, you know, 30%, human drivers will be needed. So when you actually do the math out and, you know, those self-driving cars will be very abundant, the market actually for human drivers and, and by extension jobs will be 3x over the next decade. I'm curious in taking that logic as to your perspective on what, you know, AI and technology will do specifically for jobs in the in the retail industry. It's, of course, easy to see, you know, which jobs it takes away. But in your view, is there a similar nuanced perspective for retail where technology actually enables a growth paradigm? You know, as, as an outsider, I can see, for example, you know, more personalized experience with in-store attendance on the floor. Um, how, how do you think about this kind of notion of paradigm?
1: Look, throughout the history of, uh, of uh... Uh, the development of advanced, advanced economies. Uh, everyone's always felt that the next uh, innovation will destroy jobs and uh, and uh, put, impoverish everyone. And, and of course it's gone the other way around. And so if you go back to the uh, beginning of the Industrial Revolution uh, people thought that all these machines were going to put everyone out of work and, uh, and that uh, you'd have massive unemployment and there were uh, you know, groups of people like the Luddites who uh, threw machinery into the to the cogs of the machines, or to, in order to break them and stop them from working, because they thought it would destroy, uh, destroy the future economy. And so I I I believe that uh, that uh, the uh, economies are much more robust than that. Technology creates value; it doesn't destroy value. And what it does eliminate is the, is the is the sort of boring, repetitive jobs that are being done by people now because you haven't invented the machines that can do those jobs. But uh, but ultimately, of course. All of those jobs need to go away, and they will. But it doesn't mean there will be new jobs created, either creating technology or using it in much more advanced ways than we can even envision today. Now, you know, the the this will all work. You know, most rapidly, by the way, if you if you have uh, you know less uh, fettered uh, capitalism at work, so that the uh, changes can take place, can take place in a uh, you know, and let the let the market uh, by the market, and the, and and have them done correctly. What what uh, what I'm more concerned about is not the technology for jobs, but that people attempting to hold on with with good hearts to uh, to the old jobs in the old world will 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 prevent the advancement of the technology and therefore actually put more people out of work. And uh, as an example, uh, I point to, to I, don't know if, you know, I don't want to get into, into politics here, but things like uh, like uh, minimum wage legislation that doubles the minimum wage uh, for, for for some of these manual jobs. And what's what's missing from the debate is that really really accelerates the pace of the elimination of these jobs, and it makes the automation that much more affordable earlier in the adoption process, when it might not even make uh, make sense. And what we what we should be doing is putting resources into educating the next generation of workers, and into uh, you know into tech, enabling them technologically to generate more value instead of taking uh, relatively. Uh, Know, uh, manual jobs that don't generate a lot of economic value, and trying to legislate people should get paid more than the economic value that's better being generated. So, so the real question is, is uh, how do we uh, how do we move forward in a way that doesn't block the, the evolution of the technology, and nor do we want to artificially accelerate what is what today would be uneconomic technology through uh, through perversely, by the way, through legislation trying to hold on to the past. So the more rapidly we get to the future, the more we're going to love it, is my belief. And people will not have to just have jobs, but higher paying jobs. But it's because they'll be generating that kind of economic worth uh, from, uh, from what they do every day. And so where the focus should be is on preparing uh, the uh, future generations for the evolution that's going to take place, not on preventing it or trying to, uh, trying to hold on to uh, something that, that uh, will inevitably pass.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree wholeheartedly. I think actually, if you look in, in the in back in history and you look at the examples, there's so many examples of um, you know. Let's take your auto you know the auto industry industrial revolution example for case. You know the conventional logic at that time exactly what the Luddites was. You know all these uh, all these machines are going to destroy jobs. They're going to take out you know all the horse carriages. There's you know not going to be any jobs for the people. And you look and, and I think in each moment of technology in history when there's a massive change and there's a massive evolution, there's so many byproducts that come from it that you could have never imagined, right? You fast forward 50, 70 years and you look and you say, you know, supermarkets or shopping malls would never have been possible. Roads were a byproduct of the automobile industry and actually coming up. In fact, in 2008, the industry itself that pretended to take away all the jobs became so big that it had to be bailed out by the government so that the economy didn't go under. So, there's always these pieces around technology which, you know, if you take it at a more tactical example, you would have never imagined 5 years ago being an Uber driver is actually a tenable job, right? You would have you would have never thought that that was actually a job and those kinds of things come out of new technology innovation. I think the biggest piece that we as a society have to talk through and think through are more along the lines of how do we actually get people through that period of time? What does the education look like? Um, what are the actual transition periods? Because that's where I think there can be significant displacement and, and inequality.
1: Well, of course it can be terrible, terribly disruptive, and that's why you need to. But that's why the attention needs to be spent not on trying to hold on to the past exactly. or for the future, and of course. Uh, caring for anyone who's disrupted in a way that's uh, that's consistent with our with our uh, with our, our our strong values, and that we have to do. There was a fascinating article in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks back about the cashew industry in India. I don't know if you've seen that, but it was amazing. So uh, cashews are one of the most uh, odd, odd nuts that exist, where the nut actually goes outside of the fruit, and uh, it's bizarre. But uh, but uh, the the uh, when you actually study it, I, I think who are shocked by what a cashew is, everyone loves them, uh, and uh, India developed the uh, cashew industry and became massive there, and they were the dominant supplier of cashews on the world market, and up until recently, that was true, and, uh, and the, uh, the, uh, 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 it, it provided wealth uh, for this area of India that most of India was unable to achieve uh, by being the, uh, the greatest uh, cashew growing and processing region in the, uh, in the world. Uh, much of the work is very manual and uh, and not good work. You really get down to it in the sense of uh, I don't know that people can be happy while they're while they're shucking cashews or whatever you call it, but but it certainly isn't the kind of work that that, that most people aspire to do or, or find fulfillment in, uh, in doing. But it did generate incomes for for people there. So as the, uh, the state got involved in the cashew industry, they decided that uh, this was a wealthy industry and they need to build. Uh, better hospitals and schools, which is awesome, you know, but they also started to raise the minimum wage for the cashew workers uh, uh, in order to, to, to provide a better standard of living for them, and that worked in the short term. Then what happened is the Vietnamese came over, and uh, they studied the Indian cashew makers, and they thought, ah, this can be automated, and most people thought the process of, uh, of, of processing cashews could not be automated because of the complexity of dealing with this, with this fruit. And, uh, and it turns out it can't be. And so a uh, number of Vietnamese producers automated the process, and they are, now, they are now the dominant producer of cashews on the world market. And there are not as many jobs at all in India anymore in the cashew industry, and the market is in steep decline there, and those areas are in steep decline. And even in Vietnam, a lot of people lost their jobs because they had started with manual cashew production. But now new jobs have come up for very educated people who Staff these cashew processing plants, and uh, and uh, the Vietnamese are, uh, are are living high in the hog while the while the Indian cashew uh, producers and the workers dependent on, the, on them in that region are suffering quite mightily. So you can't stop technology from happening. You need to embrace it and then look forward and say, okay, what's what's the future job? What's the next job? Because you know there's so many people you meet, you go, what do you do? And their job didn't even exist. 10 years ago or 20 years ago you walk up walk on the streets and you, you, you say you talk to people and you know you meet what do you do well I sell digital advertising well there never there wasn't digital advertising before you know what do you do well I help people you know right do their uh, uh, make sure they have a fantastic app and a mobile ecosystem where they uh, the, these are the jobs of the future so the, the objective cannot be to hold on to the past it has to be to shape the
0: yeah, I think it's it's easier now than ever actually to live with the conviction that the jobs, especially for folks that are coming out of graduate school or at my age, it's easier to live with the conviction that the jobs that we'll be doing in ten years are certainly not invented today. And I'm I'm interested in hearing your perspective. Actually, transitioning a little bit to thoughts around you know careers, thoughts around leadership. You know, how do you in in an environment like 2017, right? I think we live at a very interesting time in history. The abundance of information is incredible, but can also be overwhelming. Um, And as any change agent, whether you're aspiring to be a senior executive, an investor, a founder, you're you're constantly tasked in your job with learning, right? Especially because of how quickly things are changing. How do you think about learning today? Um, And if you were in the earlier innings of your career, how would you approach learning? And maybe the framing is, as I said that out loud, I realized maybe the framing was different. Maybe you wouldn't approach learning any differently if you were in the early part of your career than, than in the more established part, but how how do you think about learning today?
1: Look, I think most people that, that are in those that type of position in life, I'm sure you're, you're that way. Most of them are voracious readers, and so you just read everything. And uh, uh, you know, the availability of information on the internet today is spectacular. Uh, the uh, uh, you know, it is uh, it, it's amazing. I wish when I was uh, was starting out. You can go to the internet and research your paper instead of go to the stacks of the library and dig around and try to find uh, find something and uh and so uh, so you have to read everything that uh, that's remotely related to what you do and uh so I'm never worried about that part of it if you do that you're gonna think and you'll you'll innovate I believe where where most people certainly if you talk about the kind of uh kind of uh, uh you know uh, audience i believe you're uh, you know, who might be listening to what we're talking about today, where most people uh, uh, really screw up, excuse my language, is not on uh, lack of vision for the future, but it's on the people management side of being being a leader. And uh, when we start out in school, we do very well, and we study hard. It's based upon individual performance and individual assessment, individual reward. And so you can be a star all by yourself. And uh, that's true all the way through. High school, college, uh, graduate school, you could be a star as an individual. You don't need to build a team and and rely upon others. But you reach a point as your career progresses where it's really not about you anymore. It's about uh, can you put together a a team of of all-stars in every position who can can do do, uh, do the work better than you could if you were were, uh, in each of those positions matter experts are, are better suited for certain jobs than others, uh, and uh, you know, are you able to accomplish that task? And that that's, that I believe most most career-oriented high achievers uh, pay vastly too little uh, too little attention to, and that's what's going to mess them up uh, when you get down to it. Is not doing that correctly and thinking somehow some superhuman effort, you will do everyone's job for them better than they could do it. And uh, that, uh, that being uh, that, uh, because you've never failed, uh, the team will never fail uh, with you at the helm. That's ridiculous. It has to be because each member of the team does their job in a spectacular way and work well together and you get the uh, get the ultimate outcome. And that may sound probably an Oh, yeah, I know that. That's really clear. But but it's you know, sorely neglected.
0: No, I think it's actually one of those pieces of advice that on the surface you hear and you, you think, you know, that makes complete conceptual common sense. And it's actually in practice, to your point, it's one of the things that most often, you know, folks struggle with. I'm, I'm curious, you know, you've hired thousands of people, you know, in your 30 plus years as a senior executive. for For young professionals specifically, what are the types of characteristics, you know, you look for? How would you advise people to think about, you know, your first few jobs out of college or grad school? How do you put yourself in an environment in which you're transitioning mentality-wise from you know being an individual star to starting to learn how to operate within a team. What are what are the types of things that you think through um, you know when when advising folks that are starting out in their careers?
1: Look, I mean you have to surround yourself with great people and great people are those that are self-reliant, that take responsibility, that are not victims in life, that don't blame what happens on someone else, that accept it that it's through their actions, even when it's not entirely through their actions. And uh, and uh, and you'll be successful, and uh, that's 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 the, the, the key. It's the, the people that you uh, that you associate with, and that's what you need to. Uh, that's what you need to develop. And, and uh, again, uh, you know, uh, most uh, managers uh, at the start of their career pay almost no attention at all to what I'm talking about right now, which is developing their team. They pay almost entire attention. To trying to look good themselves, to trying to stand out, to to uh, to uh, you know what they themselves are accomplishing that day, uh, as opposed to uh, how to uh, work well with others and create uh, create into uh, into into uh, uh, draft others into your mission to help you succeed.
0: Yeah. So final question, and and I think you already answered it, but I'm interested to hear if there's any other perspective. But you know, if you were starting your career again. You know what? What advice would you have given yourself? Um, and you know, I think some of the pieces we've talked about about building the right team, being a voracious reader, are all you know all important. Is is that what the all encompassing advice would be, or you know, is there something on the human side of you know following what you're interested yeah, in, et cetera? Yeah. How would you think about I it?
1: I guess, yeah. Aside from 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 what we've already discussed, I would simply add uh, try to enjoy it along the way because most of us are destination oriented. And as a consequence, it's always like, uh, how much longer is it till we get where we're going? Not, uh, not. Isn't this a beautiful day today? And so, uh, I believe if you take time to enjoy a little bit more along the way, you'll also have more, uh, a more uh, universal perspective that'll be helpful in in getting where you're going. But uh, but regardless, uh, life's short, and you, you should enjoy it as you uh, as you pass through it.
0: Well, Jerry, this has been an incredibly insightful and and really fun conversation about, you know, retail technology, leadership, and and careers. So, you know, thanks again so much for, for taking the time. It was a lot of fun.
1: All right. Have
0: a nice day.